for this week's podcast, we're going to be playing the audio from the event, The Derek Chauvin Verdict, What It Means and Why. This event was moderated by Professor Buddy Schur, Director of the International Criminal Law and Justice Program, with panelists being Professor Melissa Davis, Director of the Criminal Practice Clinic, and Joseph Lascaz, the Smart Justice Organizer for the American Civil Liberties Union of New Hampshire. You are listening to The Legal Impact, the weekly podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law, now accepting applications for JD graduate programs and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. My name is Buzz Schur. Uh, I'm a professor of law at uh, UNH uh, School of Law. Uh, joining me on the panel are Joseph Lascaz, who is the Smart Justice Organizer for the ACLU of New Hampshire, and uh, Melissa Davis, who is also a professor of law, UNH Law. She runs our criminal practice clinic, and uh, prior to joining us last year, was a longtime uh, public defender in New Hampshire. Um, So what I thought I'd do to start out is... uh, kind of set the scene as to what's happened uh, this week, uh, describe uh, what Derek Chauvin was convicted of uh, and uh, what the potential sentences might be, what uh, what the uh, all things being equal, what uh, the Minnesota sentencing guidelines suggest the sentences will be. And then uh, the way we'll proceed is um, I'll start asking uh, Melissa and Joseph, and for that matter, myself, questions. Uh, and we'll go on for 35 or 40 minutes uh, doing that. And if you want to ask a question, um, put them in the uh, the Q&A function uh, at the bottom of your screen. Uh, that's the best place uh, for questions. I'll, keep, I'll pay attention to that. Uh, generally speaking, somewhere around 35 or 40 minutes, I'll stop and, and look at the questions unless there's one that seems like it would be better to ask as we're proceeding and talking, I may interrupt uh, one of the panelists, most likely myself, um, to ask the question. Um, So um, let me describe, Derek Chauvin was uh, convicted of three charges, uh, second degree murder, third degree murder, and second degree uh, manslaughter. Uh, Those are three different charges. Second-degree murder in Minnesota is causing the death of somebody while committing a felony. Uh, In this case, the felony he was alleged to have committed was an assault of uh, George Floyd. Um, He was also convicted of third-degree murder, causing the death uh, of another through a dangerous act without regard to human life. Uh, That is third-degree murder. Note that neither of these two crimes involved the prosecution needing to prove that uh, Derek Chauvin acted intentionally, uh, which significantly uh, lessened uh, the nature of the proof they needed to uh, provide. Uh, It made it easier. Uh, These are easier convictions to to obtain than a first-degree murder conviction, which require intentional behavior on Derek Chauvin's part, which is, generally speaking, harder to prove. Um, And finally, he was convicted of second-degree manslaughter, also a non-intentional crime, which is uh, culpably negligence, culpable negligence for the death of George Floyd. uh, And he Uh, And and in doing so, he took an unreasonable risk uh, with George Floyd's life. So those are the three charges he was convicted of. Um, uh, It's a little bit hard for me. I won't speak for Melissa, but it's a little bit hard for me to translate in uh, these charges to the New Hampshire context in New Hampshire. there are there's a first degree murder, a second degree murder, uh, manslaughter, and negligent homicide. There's two variants of second degree murder and two variants of manslaughter. Um, and uh, depending on the circumstances, they are what is known as uh, second degree murder and manslaughter are lesser included offenses of first degree murder. 
Uh, I am not familiar with Minnesota law, uh, but I am told uh, that uh, third degree murder is a lesser included offense of second degree murder. And I am told that second degree manslaughter is also a lesser included offense. What that means is this. Um, when everything is finished in the Derek Chauvin case, uh, he will serve, the, the two lesser charges will be dismissed and he will serve the sentence on uh, the most serious charge. That's how that will work. So while at the initial sentencing hearing, he may well receive a sentence on all three charges, um, once that case goes up on appeal and all the appeals are exhausted, he will end up serving only the sentence on the most serious charge, uh, the most, which will likely be the most serious sentence. So that's important to understand. Uh, it's not like they're gonna be able to stack sentences one after the other on these three charges. Uh, for in Minnesota, for second degree murder, uh, the maximum sentence for second degree murder is 40 years. Uh, for third degree murder, the maximum sentence is 25 years. And for second degree manslaughter, uh, the maximum sentence is 10 years. Minnesota is a, what is known as a guidelines state. They have sentencing guidelines, which tends to, it, it, it identifies everything being equal and depending on the background of the defendant and some other factors, what the, uh, the starting point is for sentencing. So for example, for second degree murder, uh, the sentencing guidelines using the term loosely predict that Derek Chauvin would get a 12 and a half year sentence. Now, the, uh, for third-degree murder, they would also predict a 12-and-a-half-year sentence. For the second-degree manslaughter, they would predict a four-year sentence. Now, the prosecution has an opportunity to allege uh, aggravating factors, which would, if the judge finds that there are any of those aggravating factors, he can increase the sentence uh, to some extent. Um, or to a great extent, uh, in, in this case, and that applies in all three of the charges, in the sentencing in all three of the charges, uh, in this case, the aggravating factors that were alleged were uh, uh, the, the, the homicide was committed with particular cruelty, number one. Number two, it was committed in the presence of children. Uh, and number three, uh, Derek Chauvin abused his position of authority in committing the homicide. The judge needs to make a finding that the prosecution, after hearing to the prosecution's evidence at a sentencing hearing, that the prosecution has met uh, those aggravating factors, one or more of those aggravating factors. Interestingly, the um, uh, Derek Chauvin had a opportunity to have the jury decide whether an aggravating factor, any one of the three advocating, aggravating factors had been met in this case, he chose to waive that right and have the judge make a decision, which is it's a very interesting decision. And, and perhaps we can talk about that uh, as, we, uh, as the discussion uh, goes on. Um, he had the right uh, basically under uh, um, a U.S. Supreme Court case of, of, of having a jury decide the whether the aggravating factors were met, but he chose not to avail himself of, of that right. Uh, what will happen? Um, the sentencing hearings is going to be in another eight weeks. Between now and then, uh, a, a court official or a government official of some sort, sometimes it's a court official, Sometimes it's an executive branch official will or write a pre-sent will do a pre-sentence investigation and write a pre-sentence report. Uh, we'll talk to probably uh, at least the way it works in New Hampshire. Everyone the prosecution wants them to talk to, and everyone the defense wants them to talk to, and do their own investigation. 
uh, and uh, make uh, likely make uh, certainly provide as much information as comprehensive a body of information to the sentencing judge as possible. Uh, I don't know in Minnesota whether the the person writing the pre-sentence investigation report uh, recommends a particular sentence or not. Uh, uh, that uh, to the extent they're done in New Hampshire, uh, that is often the case. Um, I'll see if I, there's anything else I want to tell you about um, about the circumstances here. Uh, certainly, Derek Chauvin's uh, uh, lawyers will will spend a lot of time, and as well the prosecution, a lot of time preparing for the sentencing hearing. Uh, it is uh, very, very common, and in, in most states required at this point, that the the victim's family have an opportunity to speak uh, to the judge at the sentencing hearing. They don't have to, but they will very likely uh, have that opportunity. Um, Melissa, is there anything I've left out before uh, I start asking you all questions? I, I don't think so. Um... I do believe I saw, um, and uh, maybe if you saw differently, but I did see there was an additional uh, possible upward departure for him being an, a particularly vulnerable person due to him being in handcuffs at the time. So I think there's a possible upward departure for that as well. Right. I think I left that out. Thank you for that. Um, so uh, let me ask, uh, Joseph, let me start with you. Are you surprised by the verdict yeah i am um, i'm i'm surprised I, I i i really didn't have expectations uh either way as to what the verdict was going to be and that's just based on the line of work that i do um in advocacy work yeah there's been many times where i have seen instances of um injustice happen to community members uh, and the perpetrators in law enforcement were, were not brought to uh, any form of justice or accountability. Uh, and when you see that happen time and time and time and time and time again, um, and not just in New Hampshire, just over the course of uh, history um, of the United States, you see this, it, you, you, you don't have expectations. So when, you, when the verdict came back, it's like, wait, hold on. Did this really happen? Is this is this for real? Like, is there is it is it true? It's it, it catches you um, a little off guard. So I I was surprised uh, that they were able to um, to reach this verdict um, in this situation. How about you, Melissa? Um, I think similarly was. Um, I think in the beginning, I, um, you know, uh, had my doubts and, and was quite worried. We've seen this happen over and over and over again. Um, and I think, you know, you know, Rodney came 30 years ago, right? And um, that, that, that case was coming back to a lot of people's memories and thinking, are we still in that same place? Um, and I think as the case went on and I saw the evidence, um, evidence I think presented in this case, unlike any before, I really started to think that um, there was some hope that this jury would um, convict in this situation. Um, and I think, I think it's really due to the, the evidence um, that was presented. Um, just to, to weigh in, I was, uh, since I'm the oldest of the three of us, um, I, uh, I'm the most cynical, perhaps, of the three of us. I don't know. It's a hard judgment to make. Um, so I've, I've uh, the Rodney King you referred, case you referred refer to, for those of you who uh, don't remember that or weren't around at that time in your lives, um, Rodney King was beaten up by uh, uh, L.A. Uh, police officer, officers, plural, I think. Um, and yes, multiple. Uh, and it was uh, seemed to be a pretty egregious and obvious case, uh, and he was tried. Uh, and excuse me, uh, his uh, the police officers who beat him up uh, were tried, and all of them were acquitted. 
Um, and that, you know, there's certainly many other examples of that. And historically, it's always been very, very difficult to get convictions of police officers for murdering people. Um, and, and it is, um, so I was awesomely cynical um, in spite of what the case seemed to feel like from the very beginning or almost the very beginning. Although I have to, I was reading today that the original, the original report by the uh, Minneapolis Police Department was an individual had a medical incident while being arrested by the police and died as a result, which uh, I think we now know is something less than a, an accurate representation of what happened. Um, but it's a reflection of, of how much power uh, uh, the police have, not only in and how they set the narrative, but uh, how much power they have in all of our minds, um, such that uh, even jurors who, and I've been, done a good bit of reading on this over the years, even jurors who, who believe that they're uh, fair and they don't uh, give, cut a police officer any slack, um, it's just really, really hard historically to get convictions in these cases. I, and Buzz, I just want to jump in there real quick on that, because um, when okay. you talk about the Rodney King situation, um, you know, I remember seeing that growing up. I was, you know, I was I was young, but um, I think that what made that so significant when you said that it was a pretty, uh, you know, you, you used the term, it was a pretty um, egregious. Uh, egregious and obvious case, right? But why, why, why was that, right? Because it was caught on camera. Yep. It was caught on the dash cams of the police officers at a time when cameras, like, I don't, do we even have cell phones back then? We didn't even have cell phones really yeah. back then. They might, but we maybe they existed like the big ones in, yeah, in the cars six, or whatever. Six people like had cell phones, right. <laughs> those bricks you could throw at someone or something. Like, those would be, but like yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you weren't seeing, technology wasn't that you would be able to catch that type of event happening and we were hearing that it was happening um you know uh from uh, going back to when the panthers were first established out in california to to combat what was happening to black and brown community members out there and then when that situation was captured the way that it was on camera where you could clearly just see um the off the uh, they're not i don't consider them police officers when you see the members in law enforcement on that video uh just repeatedly just beating this man on the ground um, in front of the camera with no, knowing that their dash cams are on, they didn't even care. Uh, that was, that is, I think, what uh, sowed the seeds of, of, of um, doubt and, and disbelief uh, in communities when it came to seeing justice um, when it involved law enforcement and community members. And I think, um, you know, to me, the, the difference here being, you know, the, if, as Buzz said, you know, the initial police press release, man dies after medical incident during police interaction, right? And that's how it would have been left if it weren't for Darnella Frazier, right? If she did not have that videotape. A 17-year-old teenager, yeah. If she didn't have it, if it wasn't out there, if it wasn't shown to the world, you know, that's likely how it would have been left. Um, uh, maybe, you know, for people close in that community, it would have been different. Um, but for the world, no way would you know George Floyd's name. Um, and no way would there be, I think, this prosecution of Derek Chauvin. So, you know, I think it's similar in that, you know, going into this, yes, we had video just like in Rodney King. Um, but, you know, the, and so there was, I think, doubt about, you know, is video enough? Is, is it enough in this situation um, to make the difference? And I, I think, you know, um, I think it, it was a, a really key part of the evidence in this case, but I, I think there were a lot of other things that contributed to. Um, yeah, which leads to my next question to both of you, which is, uh, uh, it sounds like both of you thought uh, probably the video was the most, most important piece of evidence uh, there. Um, and, and, and interestingly, in this case, there were 
three types of video. There was uh, uh, Miss Frazier's uh, uh, cell phone video. There was uh, the body cams that some of the police officers involved, excuse me, in the incident were wearing. Body cams are relatively new phenomena in this country. Uh, and there was uh, surveillance videos from the convenience store, which captured pieces of the interaction, as well as um, George Floyd's presence in the uh, in the convenience store itself. What other important? I mean, was that would that have been enough? Uh, let me ask this to both of you: Would those, those videos, those three sets of videos, you think that would have been enough to get a conviction without any of the other evidence? Joseph, or go ahead, Melissa. I mean, I, I worry. I think, um, you know, there, there's, um, you know, just allowing for jurors to kind of take their own um, view of watching that video, bring their own, you know, experiences, whatever those may be, to, to uh, viewing that video has not proved to be a successful uh you know, way to try these cases in the past. It's not been enough. And so while I think it was, you know, critical to this case, I think it was the the people there that made the difference in a lot of ways. Um, you know, everyone from, you know, obviously, you know, the Darnella who's, you know, recording it to the other people that came to testify in this case, um, you know, the EMT who's begging um, the police officers to stop um, and is, you know, giving them and telling them that he's dying um, to the MMA fighter who's giving information about, you know, what it means to put someone in that kind of hold and, you know, the consequences that can happen to well, talk about um, fortuity for the prosecution and of all things, having both an EMT there who wanted to aid and an MMA fighter. I mean, how many times do you ever get that in any case, let alone both of those things? Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, you know, it, so it is the people there. And I think that the trauma that, you know, came out through their testimony um, was, I think, m most powerful. Um, in this situation, um, I think we, you know, Jerry's want to hear from police officers and they want to hear from experts, but for the people who were there and watched this, I can't help but think that their testimony was, you know, probably what stuck with them um, night after night after night in the, in this trial. Joseph, how about you? Yeah, I, I share um, Melissa's concerns um, over the video and video footage and, and everything that she just said. And, and to add to that, I, um, I think about it and I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know if video would have been enough for the exact reason that Melissa said, right? Each person has their own personal views, perspectives, and how of how they interpret something. They can, can have two people that look at the exact same thing and have two completely different interpretations. Um, you know, I think about it and it's like, uh, you know, um, when I was growing up, right? Uh, and, and, and even maybe even before that too, uh, a black man, right, did not want to hear that he was on camera by cops. Like you just did not want to hear that, that that the cops got you on camera or that you were on camera. Not even the cops, just hearing that you're on camera anywhere. Like that's like weird. Now, black men, when they're in the community interacting with cops, are trying to be on camera all the time for their own safety, right? And yet, that's still in a lot of situations. Um, gets, oh, well, we only saw 10 seconds of a video or the person was only filming after we never got to see what happened before um, the video. So that, like, that's the narrative that we hear. So I, 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 I can't say that um, video would or wouldn't have been enough for conviction. What I do know from experience is that uh, you can't, you can't fake or deny trauma. And when you heard the people testifying about what they witnessed and saw, um, I don't know how many people have actually truly seen like a, a violent act happen in front of them, directly in front of them. Most people, I, I would assume most people just don't really get to see like true violence happen. And when you do see it, it changes you. 
And when you heard the people talking and testifying as, as to that, I think that that is something that if you are a human being and you have a heart, there is no way that you can't be moved or changed by that. I think that that was necessary. The testimony that we heard um, coupled with video, um, with the videos um, and the eyewitness testimonies, I think everything had to perfectly line up to get what we, what the, the decision that we saw. You know, I, think, I think, sorry, but, um, oh, and, and just, well, just yeah. real quick, Melissa, just one quick last thing too, is this, is that also when you said, was that enough to convict? I, I guess it really depends on who, who is being tried. Is video enough to convict me or you or a community? Yeah. You, you put my face on camera somewhere. I am getting arrested. You know, if, if it's on camera, we're doing great. So I, I think that it depends on who, is also um, being tried when it comes when it comes to that. The, the other just unique thing I thought was um, the amount of law enforcement that testified against Derek Chauvin. You don't yeah, see that's that. What I was going to mention that it's just yeah. remarkable. And and go ahead, Buzz. I mean, I, I I just I was you know police chief. I mean, come on. Yeah, the, the, his police chief, a supervisor. Um, you almost never see that. You know, the, they close. Generally speaking what you see way more often is police officers within the department closing ranks. You can always find an expert who's been a police officer to testify that it was unreasonable use of force, but that you're finding these people within the very department, the people who are their immediate supervisor, who are their uh, the ultimate boss, the police chief, who are the training officer for the Minnesota Police Department. That is remarkable to see that. And I think as, you know, as Joe, all that said, what is a little uh, potentially disturbing to me is that in my view, and I'd be curious whether you two agree with this or not, in my view, they needed those three different types of video they needed the testimony from the EMT, from the other witness room, the MMA guy. They needed testimony from people within the department. They needed all three groups of that testimony to get a conviction. And I'm skeptical if they were missing one of those three groups of types of evidence, whether they get a, a conviction, which is a, in many ways, a very sad commentary. Um, um, I'm going to, uh, let me ask, uh, let me go back to my questions and, uh, you know, we're, we're whipping along pretty quickly and we're getting a good, good number of questions. So, um, let me just ask this question of, uh, let me ask this question. What, um, Melissa, do you want uh, Derek Chauvin to get a prison sentence? Mm. I know that's a hard one for you. It is, it, yeah. I have your list of questions and I, I had written out some answers and that's the one that's blank. Um, you know, I think- Make you feel any better. It's a hard one for Joseph too. Um, you know, uh, I was actually talking with um, a friend about this a little bit and, and she referred me to some writings by a woman named Erica Parnell, who um, I think, you know, basically says, Nothing is sort of solved by incarcerating police officers, um, but police officers should also not be the first ones to experience the mercy of justice um, in this situation. And so it's difficult, right? I think that's a good way of framing it to say, you know, putting Derek Chauvin in prison, I, I don't know, accomplishes um, really any of the change that people I think are really crying out for. Um, it's accountability. And I don't think we should dismiss that, um, especially when I think um, the family is very um, appreciative of accountability in this situation. But, um, you know, generally speaking, I don't think prison solves anything for anyone. So it's, it's difficult. To put you on the spot, if you were the prosecutor in this case, which I know you never would be, but um, what sentence, well, let me do it from the perspective of the judge. What sentence should the judge, do you think the judge should give Derek Chauvin? 
Should give or will give. Um, Should and will. You know, I think, um, I mean, I, I expect and think that, you know, if you have 12 and a half is sort of the baseline um, for the charge without uh, talking about the upward departures, I would think we're in the realm of 20. Um, and I think, you know. Um, so now that's the expect answer. What's the should answer? For you, what should he get? I'm putting you, intentionally putting you on the spot here. Mm -hmm. I'll answer this question too. Yeah. Um, I hope all of us, because, you know, I think I, it makes me think about kind of, you know, studies of incarceration and kind of, you know, what's the point of incarceration and, and um, you know, what time frame you know, really is, should be a maximum, you know, and I think my recollection of those kinds of readings is in other countries, you know, 20 is kind of just the limit uh, um, in those situations. Um, and so, you know, I think um, it would be, I think somewhat hypocritical to say, you know, lock them up and throw away the key and be done with it, you know, in terms of um, my also view that you know, incarceration doesn't help and doesn't make a difference and certainly isn't gonna change anything in terms of, um, you know, like I said, the kind of change that we want to come out of um, what's happened over the last year. And so, you know, I think, I think, not to, intending to dodge your, the question, it's but a I hard think, question. It's a very it's a hard, hard question. but I think, you know, um, I think what, you know, what the judge gives and what's reasonable here is, I mean, I would be disappointed if it was anywhere near the 12.5, I suppose. How about you, Joseph? So you're asking if I think that he should go to prison? Yeah, first part of it, should he go to prison? And if so, what sentence for you should he get? So should he go to prison? Um, for me, this is an extremely loaded question. And the reason why it's a loaded question is because I, I myself have served 13 years in prison and I was just recently released. And being in prison, that whole 13 years I was there was the worst time of my life. Um, it just absolutely is terrible because um, you're a lot like there's just things about prison that I just I don't I you know I could talk about all night that makes it bad so I um, I see this is this is my thing when it comes to prison unfortunately prison when you sentence someone to prison there is only a certain time period and it's in, a, in, in my experience, it differs from person to person. There's only a certain amount of time period that you can send someone to prison before prison actually loses its value and has the opposite effect. For someone that could be just a single day, for other people, it might be six months, it could be a year, but it, it depends on, it depends for people. But for every person, what I see is that once a person gets conditioned and used to the prison environment, it no longer holds sway. It is not, it's no longer punishment. It's no longer anything other than creating more of a criminal. It is only doing, it's only doing nothing more but reinforcing the behavior and mindset that put that person there. Um, I know that, uh, you know, Derek killed a black guy um, publicly in a horrible, in uh vicious manner. And I know that uh, I, I, I would, I, I believe based on my experience that once he does um, go to prison, um, Aryan brothers are gonna take him in. He killed a black dude. He killed, he's not going to, he is, he's gonna be taken in. He's gonna be, um, he's going to be idolized by a, a, a group within the prison system um, that operates with it. And I, and I just think that that, will uh that is going to just defeat the whole purpose right um so would you give him a prison sentence at all if you were the judge yes i would my reason for giving him a prison sentence though would be different it's it because i would i would hand out a prison sentence for this fact the as of right now as of today 421 at 736 the only way that we have 
of holding people accountable in the community when they do stuff like that is a prison system. That's all we have right now. That's where our society is. We have, there has to be a place to keep community members safe. You have to have a place to, to um, segregate individuals who think and operate like Derek, right? Can't have them in the community, um, either spreading their philosophies, ideologies, um, or continuing their behavior. So in that sense, and for accountability wise, yes, I would. The other reason why I would, I would, um, I guess if I was a judge, uh, be inclined to, uh, to where I would hand out a prison sentence is for the simple fact that when I think of police officers, I think about the fact that they are, in my opinion, and should be held to a much, much higher standard than community members, given not only their training, but the authority and scope of their, of their job. And there has to be a clear message to the community that the abuse of power the abuse of, of, of the badge and of, and of the name law enforcement cannot be tolerated at all because you cannot put a life back into a body once it's taken. You can't. So I, in that sense, um, I, and, and, and do I believe it would be a deterrence? No. I think that, you know, I, it wouldn't be a deterrence. For, it, it wouldn't be you know, under the mind of, of deterrence and whatnot. I think pe people are going to do what they're going to do regardless of whatever the punishment is, as we've seen um, in our world. So I, I, I would be doing it solely because you cannot allow that to operate in the community. There must be accountability in that situation. And that's where we're at as a society. Um, I have the great advantage of going after uh, both of you eloquent people. Um, so I don't have you know, that much more to add. I completely agree with both of you that I'm not a big, I guess I'd call myself a modified prison abolitionist. I, you know, I don't believe long prison sentences do anything other than make things worse. Um, unless you're going to have a life without parole sentence, the individual is going to get out. And, you know, depending on the individual, as Joseph said, somewhere to me around 10 or 15 years, you know, even if it accomplishes anything, the sentence accomplishes anything positive in the first 10 years or so, I think after that, it doesn't accomplish much of anything. Um, I, uh, I think there needs to, for that said, and it pains me to say this, I think there needs to be for society as a, a whole and the culture in the United States, there needs to be something of a message sent that this is behavior that cannot be tolerated. Uh, and there needs to be a, a, a benchmark laid down in this case uh, that, is that is always remembered. So, you know, my sentence would be, Derek Chauvin is 46 years old. I don't want him getting out until he's relatively unemployable. So I guess I, I'm somewhere around 14 years um, that, that, you know, his productive life uh, as a uh, uh, employed contributor to society, certainly as a police officer, is uh, tends to be diminished by the time he gets out of prison. That's how I think it through. Um, I'm going to ask this one more question, then we'll get the, there's a good number of questions uh, we've got uh, already. So, but let me ask this uh, one more uh, question to try and continue to provoke you to. So does this, these th convictions, do they represent justice, Joseph, as you think about justice? No. Why not? I mean, what is ju justice is justice. I mean, the definition of justice, is what fairness, um, moral uprightness, what is fair about that situation? What is, I mean, what's fair? And I'm not, I, I am not saying that, um, and I want to be very clear when I say that I'm not saying that, uh, a life is taken, so we should take 
so a life should be taken uh that that would be fair that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying is i don't think that there is any fairness that you can bring to that situation i think that this was accountability this was this was simple and plain accountability i mean i do believe that uh there has been um some form of justice um administered in this situation um but i don't know if he was brought to justice, in my opinion. I think that he was he was held accountable for his actions, as he should be. Melissa, how about you? Um, no. I, well, first of all, I'll say this. Um, I think, you know, my, my our perspectives, you know, different than his family's. Um, and, um, you know, the family has said, you know, my brother got justice. And so I, I accept that. And you know, understand that for them, you know, the importance of this uh, conviction is, is huge. Um, and for accountability, but also, I think for them, a form of justice. And, um, but as far as, you know, us thinking justice was done, uh, somehow this problem is uh, now, I hope no one thinks fixed or solved, but, um, you know, even better is, is just not true. I mean, the number of, you know, I heard today this morning, every day during the George Floyd trial, um, at least one person was murdered by a police officer in this country, killed by a police officer, um, murdered by a police officer. Every single day of the trial that happened. Um, and so, you know, does, you know, does this prosecution really address, you know, this underlying issue of the fact that they're killing People of color, they're killing adults, they're killing children. You know, I mean, the Micaiah Bryant stuff that's coming out right now is, you know, shocking just as Adam Toledo was last week, just as Tamir Rice was years ago, right? So like, you know, I think this, um, you know, is a moment where, you know, that has captured attention and needs to be exploited and used as much as it possibly can be to try and achieve change. Um, but to me, the it's only demonstrating how broken how broken the system is, you know. Um, and so, you know, what are we going to do with the with the broken system? Is is I think the question. And and the much harder question. I, I tend to be in the same place as you all. I respect uh, I respect the uh, uh, Floyd family's uh, feelings about justice and that it, this has provided these convictions have provided some measure of justice, if only in that they're convictions and not acquittals. Um, and I think that's important, particularly to them. Uh, but I think it, at most it's accountability. And um, I'm, I'm very worried that as a cultural matter in our public discourse, we will say, okay, everything's fine now that they, they got the convictions. And so we don't need to turn the world upside down because they got convictions. And I, I worry that it's this, you know, any sense that this was justice justifies the bad apple kind of analogy, right? That, you know, this guy was a bad apple. If we just prosecute bad apples, you know, that's going to fix this situation. And um, I just, I, I, I think we can't look at this as bad apples. The system is, you know, um, problematic and, you know, I think sort of focusing on this trial and this verdict, you know, can really help, you know, I think some people draw the line between good cops or bad cops and whatever, when really we should be talking about policing. And uh, yeah, one, uh, one of the questioners uh, mentions uh, in her question, uh, the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice decision today to open an investigation of the Minnesota police, the Minneapolis Police Department and their excessive use of force. They don't open that investigation if this is just the only example of that. Um, so there's, you know, uh, the bad cop. This is just one bad cop, uh, though that was... Uh, the prosecution seemed to emphasize that, particularly in their closing argument, um, for understandable persuasion reasons, uh, that they weren't asking the jury to condemn all police officers. So that's probably, it's a legitimate, or that, that, that's an understandable approach on the part of the prosecution. 
uh, but certainly uh, things would be, uh, it would be a big disappointment if this were viewed as a one bad cop circumstance. Let me go to some of the questions uh, from James Dean. We'll pretend that James Dean is the president of the university um, and uh, ask, the, uh, ask this question. Does this case create any precedents? Like legal precedents or, or <laughs> I mean, I think that, that can mean- Start with legal precedents. Um, I don't know. I, I think that um, in Minnesota, it's going to create a precedent that, you know, police officers um, are convicted of murder. They, you know, will face, um, you know, maybe, uh, I mean, I guess they will face serious prosecution, hopefully, but more that, you know, they will be facing a number of years. I think it can serve as precedent for, you know, maybe the sentence that comes out, but, um you know, legal issues specifically, um, you know, I, I don't know what, you know, sort of legal issues were raised that might create legal precedent, but I think as far as prosecutions go and the precedent that's set, I, I saw some other, you know, kind of questions in the chat about, you know, what's the expectation now with Dante Wright, you know, um, and what's gonna happen in that situation. And I think what's gonna happen, you know, for the other, you know, police officers that are charged? Is it setting precedent, you know, in those cases as well? I, I think absolutely. Uh, Joseph, do you have anything to add or? No, I, I, I don't know um, legally what precedents will be set by this, but I do think a precedent will be set um, in the community for the actions that they took, um, the advocacy work, the coming together, um, to achieve um, justice and accountability. Uh, I think that that is, um, I think that this is a whole new precedent that will be set um, as George's Floyd's name is, 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 is known in all 50 states and across the world. Um, so I do, I do think in that sense, there, it, there might be a precedent. I think, uh, you know, precedent and too, in terms of people's actions, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, think what what will I do if I am put in that position of bystander? You know, what what can I do? And I think before there was a lot of fear. You know, um, I think family members talking about you know, had we been there, had we intervened, it would have been, you know, maybe maybe George would be alive, but more probably more of us would have been arrested, right? And that was sort of the presumption that if you intervene in this situation, you're putting your own life and liberty at risk. Um, and I think now the precedent, you know, is more, I think, people thinking, I can, I'm going to be this person with the cell phone camera, you know, I'm going to be this person who speaks out, um, and, you know, really empowering, you know, us as community members to, you know, be, keep watchful eyes when you see the police on, you know, the side of the road or the sidewalk with somebody, um, and be witness to it, because we've seen that that's, that's what made a significant difference here. I would, uh, in, a, in a more narrow circumstance, I, I, I am wondering whether uh, police departments around the country are, are going to uh, review their uh, excess use of force policies to see if they, any of them, allow for kneeling on somebody's neck. You know, I wager there are some very expansive use of force policies in some police departments around the country. And it may, it may provoke a, a reevaluation of that. Um, I and mean, that's a very narrow, it's not exactly a precedent. What happens in the Minnesota police department really uh, changes they may make has, you know, doesn't mean any changes are gonna occur anywhere in the country. What happens in Minnesota legally really stays essentially within Minnesota. You know, legally there may be some some precedent depending on how the pre the uh, the trial pre trial publicity and trial publicity uh, legal issue plays out on appeal. Um, there may be something there, but you know, there's nothing particularly remarkable to me uh, about this case in a legal sense. A question from Nicole. Do you think reporters have a responsibility to report more skeptically when repeating police reports? And how do you think we as a citizens can try to hold the press accountable? Joseph, go ahead. Great question. I love this question. Um, yeah, I think that I think that reporters and media have a huge part to play 
um, in, in, in these situations, uh, right? I, I think that negativity is sensationalized by, by media. Um, so they're always looking. That's why it was, you know, um, you, you, I, I, I was reading newspaper articles about that that wanted to focus on um, whether or not um, George Floyd had substance, um, substances in his, uh, in his system, if this would, like, not the fact that a life was taken, right? It's always, it, it, it's something. So I do believe that reporters do need to have, do due diligence when reporting these situations and, and take a step back and really um, evaluate the impact of what they're saying in the community, right? What they're saying is gonna be interpreted by everyone. And, and like we talked about every, before, two people can look at something completely different. They're, the impact that reporters have on, on, you know, on, on, in our communities is huge and they need to, they need to do, have more due diligence when they report. Listen. Yeah, I mean, it sort of gets together with a little bit of the last question of your question about, you know, whether police departments are reviewing their policies. I don't know or not, but what's interesting is, um, you know, I'm specifically aware of a group in the North Country um, that is, you know, um, looking at police departments and asking them, you know, for their policies. And the response that they're getting a lot of the time is, we can't give you our policy yet because it's currently under review. You know, they're asking for the, their use of force policies and they're saying it's currently under review. I, I don't know what exactly that's going to mean or whether there's actually going to be any change of it. But I think it's those community members that are looking at, um, you know, uh, you know, holding police accountable for their policies, examining what their policies are, asking the questions about them and then turning around and asking about their funding and, you know, looking at their funding and saying, how are you using your funding um, and making it known to other public, to the rest of, of their community. Um, you know, uh, I, I know that, you know, going to a you know town council meeting or to selectman meeting or whatever it may be in your, in your small town can often be you know maybe not the most exciting thing but it is where the details of you know um, how much money is spent you know on policing and the priorities for policing um, and the reports that come from police um, about their policies and stuff get made public and paying attention um, on the local level to what's going on in your community about this um, is, so important uh, because it's, I think, you know, where we can, you know, really make effective change considering how decentralized policing is in this country. Um, just to pick up on that point for a second um, and to tie it to, to the question about legal precedent, you know, I know there's a lot of talk around the country about whether police should be wearing body cams or not. Uh, and there's, there's some Depending on one's view, there's some positive views and negative views. Body cams were useful in the prosecution of this case uh, for uh, for the prosecution. Um, I served uh, a little over, getting close to a year and a half ago, on the Portsmouth Police Commission's uh, subcommittee on body cams. They were decided the police commission wanted to get a recommendation as to whether to have uh, whether they should uh, the police department should adopt body cams. Um, and uh, all the police officers on the commission who were sitting in uh, wanted no part of body cams. Um, um, in fact, I was the sole vote in favor of body cams. Um, by contrast, uh, the Manchester Police Department, uh, led by their uh, police chief uh, and by the Board of Aldermen overseeing uh, uh, and, the, and the police commissioners, uh, embraced, enthusiastically embraced body camps. Uh, and those decisions, to pick up on what Melissa was saying, those decisions uh, are made at the local level. Policing, you know, if there's going to be change in, if there's going to be significant police reform, it's far more likely that it's going to uh, uh, happen at the state and local level, uh, not at the federal level. The federal government can wield the power of the purse and say, we'll give you tons of money if you engage in this new practice. But that tends to be the extent of the way the federal government can influence police practices. 
uh, with some exceptions. So, you know, it uh, to, to speak um, like a, uh, a civics lecturer, um, you know, if you want things to come out a certain way, you need to talk to your uh, local officials, your be it a board of selectmen, your city council, the police commissioners. Um, going off the prison sentence, is, is Derek Chavin going to be on suicide watch for his sentence or, or just regular time? Will he be in solitary confinement for safety? Um, uh, the short answer to that is right now he's in solitary confinement um, uh, for safety purposes. Um, um, uh, I don't believe I didn't, what I read does not suggest it's suicide watch. It's just keeping him away from other prisoners. That said, I think, uh, Joseph made a very significant point that once he, if he goes to prison and once he gets to prison, uh, he's going to be, uh, uh, adopted pretty readily and quickly by the Aryan brotherhood and going to be a hero amongst them which will offer him a pretty strong measure of protection. Is that a way, a fair way to put it, Joseph? Yeah, um, so suicide watch, in order to be placed on suicide watch, a person has to go, has to claim um, that, they're, that they're feeling suicidal or that they're gonna harm themselves or something like that. So to, it, it, to, they don't just put you in suicide watch um, unless like you're you know, clearly demonstrating um, behavior that a um, licensed clinician would would deem as um, destructive behavior. Uh, so no, I don't I don't believe that he's going to go on suicide watch. Um, as far as solitary, yes, I I I am ninety nine point nine percent positive that they will not keep him in Minnesota prison system. Um, when it comes to law enforcement, um, in my experience and to my knowledge, when law enforcement does um, get convicted of a, of a case, they are not held incarcerated in the state that they, that they um, were uh, law enforcement in. So they will, he'll get shipped out to a different, he'll get quietly shipped out in the middle of the night um, or at some point in time to a different prison system. Um, he'll end up there, he'll slowly get worked into population after a few years, but for his first few years, yes, he will not be in general population because he has such a high profile case, um, but they will work him in um, and then it will be on him uh, to decide where he goes from there. Final question for each of you. Uh, we're running out of time. Um, what if George Floyd had been white? Would that have been a significant difference in any way about how this case progressed and came out? For, Joseph? In my, in, in my opinion? Yep. Um, I think that if George Floyd had been white, I think that it would have been just as significant. A human life is a human life. Um, for me, I think it's exact. I think that this situation exacerbated by the fact that Historically, communities of color have had such a troubled and um, broken relationship with law enforcement that seeing this has had elevated to a um, to the level that we saw that we have seen. Um, but I, I do I think one of the most influential members for me on my mental liberation and, and advocacy is you know is Malcolm X. And one of the things Malcolm X said was that uh, he said, "I'm for truth." no matter who's telling it. I'm for justice, no matter who it's for or against. Um, I'm a human being first and foremost. So I am for whatever or whoever benefits humanity as a whole. Um, so I, to me, it would, it would be the same watching an officer place their knee on an individual's neck, whether they were white, black, Asian, Hispanic, it would, have, it would have had the same impact, I think. Um, but I do think that we see it at the level that we have because of the relationship uh, between communities of color and law enforcement. Melissa, final word. I agree with everything he said. I think I, that's exactly what I, I would say on that as well. Um, 
Um, we've got a, a number of other questions. We've gone for a while, but uh, we promised we'd end this at eight o'clock. So uh, thank you all who attended for your participation. And uh, Melissa, thank you very much. Uh, Joseph, thank you very much. Very thoughtful uh, uh, answers and, and sequence of thoughts. Uh, so thank you for sharing them all with us. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.